You're listening to What Does the Word Say, a series of podcasts on biblical theology produced by Grace and Glory Media. My name is Mark Roby, and I'm your host for this series. Our teacher is Dr. Richard Spencer. We're resuming our study of systematic theology today by continuing to examine Christology. Last time we established that Jesus Christ was fully human and that he overcame every temptation in his humanity, strengthened by the same Holy Spirit power that is available to all believers, which is a serious challenge to us all to not sin. Dr. Spencer, what do you want to discuss today? I want to look at why it is theologically important that Jesus be fully human. As we noted in session 113, the apostle wrote in 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, that, quote, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world, unquote. So to deny the full humanity of Jesus is to give place to the spirit of the Antichrist. Well, that certainly emphasizes the importance of the topic. It does, yes. And in examining this topic, I'm going to again follow fairly closely the presentation in Wayne Grudem's book, Systematic Theology. He notes that there are, quote, several reasons why Jesus had to be fully man if he was going to be the Messiah and earn our salvation. Now, before you proceed, perhaps we should remind our listeners that the Hebrew word Messiah simply means anointed and refers to the Savior promised in the Old Testament. The Greek word Christos, which also means anointed, is the source of our English word Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. Well, we haven't said that in quite a while, and not everyone knows it, so it's a timely reminder. But getting back to why the Messiah, or the Christ, had to be fully man in order to earn our salvation, the first reason Grudem lists is that he had to be man in order to be our representative before God as he fully obeyed God's laws. Remember that Adam was God's appointed representative for the entire human race, which theologians call our federal head, as we discussed at some length in session 76. Therefore, because he was our representative— when he fell, he brought the whole race into what the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls an estate of sin and misery. And so Jesus Christ had to be fully man in order to be a new representative, or federal head, to redeem his people from the estate of sin and misery. That's exactly right. The Apostle Paul explains this in his letter to the Romans, and also mentions it in his first letter to the church in Corinth. In Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, we read, quote, Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. And when Paul speaks about the obedience of the one man, he's clearly referring to Jesus Christ. Yes, that's absolutely clear if you read the whole passage. I don't want to repeat what we said in session 76, so anyone who's interested can go look at that. But every human being is either represented by Adam or by Jesus Christ. All human beings are initially represented by Adam by virtue of being his descendants. As a result, we inherit his sinful nature and the guilt of his sin. In addition, of course, 
we heap up more guilt for our own sins, and if we die in Adam, meaning that we are still represented by him, we will go to eternal hell. Praise God that through Jesus Christ, he's provided another option. And it is a most blessed and gracious option. As Paul tells us in Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, if we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then we are united to him by faith, and he becomes our representative instead of Adam. The biblical language is that we are then in Christ. And if we are in Christ, he is in us. Jesus told us in John chapter 14, verse 20, that on that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. What an awesome and incomprehensible truth that is. God is in us. I don't understand it, but I rejoice that it's true. It's impossible to overstate the magnitude of that blessing. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul tells us, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, unquote. But we must remember the first rule of hermeneutics and interpret this verse in the light of the entire Bible. All does not mean each and every person without exception. It means all of a particular class. The very next verse, 1 Corinthians 15.23 says, quote, But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, unquote. In other words, Christ will be raised from the dead first, which is what we commemorate on Easter Sunday, but when he comes again, those who belong to him will also be raised from the dead, which is referring to the resurrection of our bodies. And the fact that Paul uses the limiting clause, those who belong to him, tells us clearly that he is not referring to every single human being. Well, this might be a good time for us to summarize what we've said so far. We've noted that every human being is represented by either Adam or Jesus Christ, which we had discussed at much greater length in session 76. Everyone is initially united to Adam by virtue of being a human being, and those who place their faith in Jesus Christ are then united to him by that faith and he becomes their representative. Which explains why Jesus had to be a man. It is God's will that we be represented by a man and Adam and Jesus Christ are the only two options available. There is no third way. And if we are represented by Christ, he took our sins upon himself and paid the penalty for them on the cross, and in return we're given his perfect righteousness, which makes us fit for heaven. I'd say that that is the most amazing and one-sided transaction imaginable. We give up our filthy sins, guilt, and shame, which deserve hell, and receive Christ's perfect righteousness, which deserves heaven. Yeah, theologians call this the double transaction or double imputation. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, when he said that, quote, God made him, which refers to Jesus Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah, that's truly marvelous. Why else did Jesus have to be fully man? The second reason Grudem gives is that Jesus needed to be man to be a substitute sacrifice for us. After all, God cannot die. In speaking about Christ, the writer of Hebrews says, in Hebrews 2 verse 14, that, quote, 
Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And in verse 17 of that chapter we read, quote, For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I feel compelled to point out that that word atonement is an interpretation rather than a translation of the Greek word in this verse. It really should say propitiation, not atonement. I agree, and other translations do a better job on that verse. We'll get to that in a later session, but for now I want to stick to the question of why Jesus had to be a true man. Okay, what's the third reason Grudem lists? He notes that Jesus had to be both God and man in order to be the only mediator between God and man. We read in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You know, it's sad when you think about Adam and Eve before the fall. They didn't need a mediator. They had direct fellowship and communion with God, but they lost that privilege because of their sin. Yeah, that's terrible. But praise God for his mercy, he restores us to fellowship with him in Jesus Christ. And the fourth reason Grudem gives that Jesus had to be a real man is to fulfill God's original purpose for man to rule over the rest of creation. God's original purpose was expressed in Genesis 1 verse 26 where we read that God said, quote, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground, unquote. But because man sinned, he doesn't rule properly. Yeah, and as a result, Jesus had to come and clean up our mess, so to speak. I guess that's one way of putting it. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, the Apostle Paul wrote that the end will come when Christ, quote, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, unquote. And to reign, of course, means to rule. And the amazing truth is that we will reign with him. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, that if we endure, we will also reign with him. Yeah, that's an incredible promise. And that brings us to the fifth reason Grudem gives for Jesus being a man. He must be a true man in order to be our example for how to properly live. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that, quote, Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, unquote. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, the apostle tells us, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I don't think that many people like the idea of following in Jesus' steps in terms of suffering. Yeah, I don't know anyone who likes suffering. But Jesus himself told us in Matthew 16, verse 24, that, quote, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, unquote. To understand this verse, you need to know that the Romans usually made a condemned criminal carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. So to deny ourselves and take up our cross is a clear reference to dying. And We need to remember that death is not the end of existence. The real meaning of death is separation, as we discussed in session 104. 
In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul commands us to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Instead, in Ephesians 4, verse 24, he tells us that we are to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's an important point, because most people, even many professing Christians, think of death as the cessation of existence. But if that were true, then it would make no sense to say, as Paul does in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, that a person could be dead in his transgressions and sins in which he used to live. As always, we need the biblical worldview to properly understand the Bible and the world we live in. But getting back to Grudem's point, Jesus Christ is to be our example. We are not to do everything he did, of course. Some of the things he did and said were only proper for God to do or say. But the way he lived, in perfect obedience to the commands of God, is to be our example. Probably the most famous verses to make that point are in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the Hall of Fame of Faith, and it lists a number of biblical examples of people who lived faithful lives. And then in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we're told, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yeah, that's great encouragement. We have many godly men and women throughout history, and even at the present time, to whom we can look as examples of living godly Christian lives. But our ultimate example is Jesus Christ himself. And the ultimate picture of his faithfulness was that he was willing to take our sins upon himself and endure the wrath of God on our behalf. Yeah, that's obviously an example that none of us ever live up to. Oh, that's for sure. But let's quickly finish listing Grudem's reasons why Jesus had to be a man. The next one he gives is that Jesus had to be a man in order to be what the Bible calls the firstborn from the dead and the pattern for our resurrection bodies. You read Romans chapter 8, verse 29 a few minutes ago, which says that Christ is to be the quote-unquote firstborn among many brothers. But we also read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And in speaking of our physical resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, the Apostle Paul wrote that, quote, The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, unquote. And then in verse 49, he says that, Just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, which refers to Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven, which of course refers to Jesus Christ. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul wrote that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That's a great passage. And it brings us to the final reason Grudem gives for Jesus needing to be a man. And this one is a bit difficult to grasp. As God, Jesus knows everything, including exactly how we feel and how we think. He knows all of our temptations, fears, and trials perfectly. 
And yet, in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15, we are told that, quote, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. And so we're being told that by actually experiencing temptation himself, Jesus is better able to sympathize with us. I see the problem. It would appear that he learned something. I think this falls into the category of things that we cannot fully comprehend. But we're told in Hebrews 2 verse 18 that because Christ, quote, himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, unquote. So we must accept it as true, even if we can't fully understand it. I do think it's a marvelous example of God's love for his people. Jesus suffered in this life for a number of different reasons, but among them is that he is better able to sympathize with us when we are tempted. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing fact to meditate on and a great place to end for today. So let me take this opportunity to remind our listeners that they can email their questions and comments to info at whatdoesthewordsay.org, and we'll do our best to answer. You've been listening to What Does the Word Say? Brought to you by Grace and Glory Media. And I'm Mark Roby. In our next session, Dr. Spencer will continue to examine biblical Christology. And we hope you'll join us. The session you heard today is available, along with all other sessions, in the archive on our website at whatdoesthewordsay.org. We also have a free book available to you entitled Good News for All People, written by Rev. P.G. Matthew, founder and senior minister of Grace Valley Christian Center. To request your free copy of this excellent summary of the biblical message of salvation, go to whatdoesthewordsay.org.